So, Lord God, we thank you that you make beautiful things out of dust. And, Lord God, I pray that you would make a beautiful thing right now. I thank you that, Lord God, you make beautiful things with your word. You speak word, your word, into the dust. And, and then you take your word and you wrap your word in flesh. And he was born in a manger and we have beheld his glory, glorious of the only son from the Father. So we thank you, Lord God, that you make beautiful things and you make them in such a beautiful way through Jesus Christ our Lord. And now, Lord God, make a beautiful thing out of us. In his name we pray, amen. May 29th, 1983, I think it was about 8.30 in the morning, I rolled over and I gazed into the face of my beautiful new bride. The night before, um, the day before, we had entered into a covenant. Uh, that night, we had celebrated the sacrament of that covenant as we communed in body and blood in the sanctuary of our covenant love. I had given her myself and all my things with me. I gazed into her face. She opened her eyes. She looked at me and she said, well, now, what do I get? What do I get? She said, I cook, I, I clean, I have sex with you. Now, what do I get? It broke my heart. I mean, it just like, it just like broke right there. And I began to bleed. I, I bled and I, I bled and I bled. I bled and the blood flowed off of the bed and onto the floor and out the door and it filled the entire land to the depths of a horse's bridle. And that didn't really happen. <laughs> didn't really happen to me. Matthew 19, 27. Then Peter responded and said to Jesus, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what do we get? What do we get? So Jesus said to them, I assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, the palingenesia, palingenesia, it literally means new genesis, when God makes all things new with his word, in the palingenesia, in the new genesis, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. You know, if that's true, what's the point in competing? What's the point in trying to be first by making somebody else last? I mean, if that's true, this entire competitive world of self-advancement is like a lie. This entire competitive creation, the survival of the fittest, is like an exercise in futility. Fut futility. Many, which we've noted also means all, many who are first will be last. And the last first. Then Jesus tells a story. Ten years and ten months ago, I preached on this story that Jesus told. 
Up until that day, it seemed as if I had gotten a whole lot for following Jesus. Fastest growing church in our denomination, public accolades, respect, brand new campus, and a nice salary. After that day, some staff grew rather offended and angry. Some people complained to the authorities. And in three years, I was standing in front of a crowd of people being tried as, as a heretic. This sermon is basically that sermon. Jesus says, many who are first will be last and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, that's like a day's wage, he sent them into his vineyard and he went out about the third hour. Now that's about nine in the morning and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. Whatever is right, dikia. It's normally translated righteous or, or just. The vineyard owner promises to be just. You know, we think justice is people getting what they deserve. But that can't be justice. Because people deserve nothing. Because people are made from nothing, but nothing and God. Justice is not people getting what they deserve. Justice is God getting what God deserves, and he deserves people in his image. He said to them, you also, the landowner said to them, you also, uh, vineyard owner, you go into the vineyard and whatever is right, whatever is just, I will give you. So they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, now that's 5 p.m., okay, that's about quitting time. He went out and found others standing idle. They're unfruitful, unfruitful. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one's hired us. He said to them, will you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, call the laborers and give them their wages. Pop quiz. In the vineyard of the kingdom, how much in wages do we merit? How much do we earn? Nothing, right? Uh, nothing. It's uh, not by works, lest any should boast. It's all grace, or maybe technically, death. For the wages of sin is death, a return to nothing. <laughs> certainly, certainly we don't earn life, but the absence of life, death. When evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, call the laborers and give them their wages, misthos, wage or reward. Beginning with the last, to the first, and when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise each received a denarius. Now, Scripture makes it clear that there are rewards in heaven, and I think those rewards must be unique to each person. But how could God give more to one person than another person if, as Paul tells us, he gives us Christ and all things with him? That's Romans 8. And 1 Corinthians 3, he says to the Corinthians, let no one boast of men, for all things are yours. All things. That's a lot. Verse 10, when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, these last men have worked only an hour, and you made them equal to us. 
who have borne the burden of the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish, fellow, I wish, I will, I choose to give to this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I choose with my own things? God's things are what? (laughs) All things, including you. So if your will conflicts with God's will, whose will should prevail? What would be just? We American evangelical Christians, I think, seem to have a rather unbiblical notion of this thing called free will. We talk as if our free will saves us. But according to Scripture, apart from God's grace, none of us has a good free will, but instead a will that's saved to sin, or uh, enslaved to sin to sin. Sin is, is a bad will. It's, it's a bad will. So we're not saved by our will. We're saved from our will. We're saved from our sins by God's will who gives us a good free will in order that none should boast and we also give praise to God for his glorious grace. Verse 15, is it not lawful, is it okay for me to do what I will with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first, and the first last. The eschatos protos, and the protos eschatos. Well, the Lord gives them each uh, the same, regardless of what we would call their choice or their merit. Think of a person that in your mind least merits heaven. Could, could, be, could be Judas Iscariot? Could be your enemy, an abuser, maybe someone uh, that abused you? Imagine that you arrive at the great banquet and they're seated next to you. Would you still eat the bread? Would you still drink the wine? According to the Apostle Paul, the person who merits heaven the least will be there. And, and, and you remember his name, right? It's Saul of Tarsus. That's Paul. And he wrote in the Bible, 1 Timothy 1, I am the protos, the chief, the foremost of sinners. And you might say, well, Judas, Judas was, was a, a worse sinner than Paul, which is to say Scripture is wrong. But I believe that Scripture cannot be broken. You you might point out, Scripture calls Judas the son of perdition, and that's correct. And so it's impossible for him to be saved, you say, and that is incorrect. For in just a paragraph before, they asked Jesus, who then can be saved of the whole rich young ruler thing? He says, with God, with God, with man, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. And besides, who are you to tell the Creator what he can and he cannot do with his things. Jesus just looked at the 12, which would have included Judas, and said, assuredly, I say to y'all that in the new Genesis, which must be after perdition and everything's burned up, in the new Genesis, you'll sit on 12 thrones judging Israel, and he was looking at Judas. (laughs) So what if he's there? What if your very worst enemy is there? 
Jesus said, if you don't forgive others, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. You know, unforgiveness is the unforgivable sin. You have to pay back your unforgiveness with forgiveness. Jesus said, whatever you do, the least of these are my brothers. And, and Judas, which means Judah, was definitely, more than any of the other disciples, more like Jesus' brothers. Whatever you do, the least of these my brothers, you do unto me. So damn Judas and you damn Jesus, which is to damn yourself. Maybe you say, well, my enemy is not Christ's my enemy. You don't know my enemy. My enemy is not Christ's brother. How do you know that? Did you judge him? Jesus also said the judgment you pronounce will be the judgment you receive. You know, Jesus said to all that were listening that day in the Sermon on the Mount, pray our Father. He just said that to everyone. Pray our Father. That makes like everybody your brother, your sister. Maybe all are Christ's brothers and sisters because through him God reconciles to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. Colossians 1.19, and scripture cannot be broken, said Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive, 1 Corinthians 15. Then as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one man's act of righteousness leads to acquittal and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous, Romans 6, 18. Uh, for to this end we toil and strive. This is why we toil and strive. Because we have our hopes set on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, Philippians 2, 9, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord every tongue and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit 1 Corinthians 12 and whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved Acts chapter 2 and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is within them praising uh, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and praise and glory forever and ever Revelations 5 and he who sat upon the throne said behold look I make all things new and write this down because these words are trustworthy in two, Revelation 21, and it is acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, 1 Timothy 2. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some would count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, 2 Peter 3. Ephesians 1.11, he accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. 1 Corinthians 13, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Love never fails. God is love. And this is love that God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son to the world that we might live through him. First John 4, Romans 11, for God has consigned all men to disobedience that he may have mercy upon all. Oh, the depth and riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid like receive a wage for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory amen and at this point 10 years 10 months ago I said Shabbat just stop and look at your heart 
Look at your heart because there is one of two emotions right now rising to the surface in your heart. And probably both. In some of you, there's a thrill. This wild, outrageous hope has just been set ablaze. Hope. But in some of you, there's anger. Real anger. Maybe you're thinking of a person and thinking to yourself, I cannot believe that piece of crap gets in. Maybe you're thinking of a group of people, named or or unnamed, but to you, they're the last. And they've made you feel like the first. And so you think, I can't believe those SOBs get the same wage as me. You're angry, like Jonah was angry outside the walls of Nineveh when God refused to destroy it. You're angry like the older brother was angry standing out the field in the outer darkness because his father had thrown a party for his prodigal younger brother. You're angry like the Pharisees were angry when Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. You're angry like we're all angry at some point. You're angry and you want to call me a heretic, but this is your problem. All I did was quote scripture. A lot of it. And Jesus said, Scripture cannot be broken. (laughs) You see, like a God-ordained knucklehead, that's what I said 10 years ago, 10 months ago. And since that time, I think I've preached on almost every passage people quote to say it's impossible for God to save everybody. 10 years ago, I understood it less. That is Hades, Gehenna, the eternal fire, the Pele, Genesea. Now I understand it more. I see how it could all be true. But even so, I'm, I'm going to say now just what I said then, and that is I'm not called to understand how it all works. I'm called to believe what God says. I'm called to believe and to certainly hope what God hopes. So if believing all is saved is a heresy, well, it's my favorite heresy. And if hoping that none should perish is a heresy, then God is a heretic. For he clearly wills that none should perish. And and isn't it lawful for God to do what he wills with his own creation? Within three years of speaking those words, I was be public and tried. Some of you were there on the floor of the Presbyterian, uh, the Presbyterian of the West in the evangelical Presbyterian church. They ruled that in order to not be defrocked, I had to recant and confess that number one, there's a group of people impossible to save. And number two, God was pleased to damn the rest of mankind. And by that, they meant endless perdition. They judged me. But I think maybe they felt judged by me. I tried not to judge them. And yet the word Jesus spoke did judge them. In fact, the word Jesus spoke is judging us right now. We thought we were judging this parable, right? You preach, you analyze it, you think you're judging it. We thought we were judging the word, and lo and behold, the word of grace is judging us. It cuts. It cuts between two things. Number one, that part of you that's thrilled with grace. That part of you that rejoices at the thought, maybe God gets his wish. Maybe God gets his will. Maybe God gets his choice. Maybe he gets his desire. Maybe love 
does not fail. Maybe the blood of Christ is that powerful. Maybe God will give me a new heart that wills the good because I want the good, that wills the good and freedom. And maybe God will give everybody else a new heart that wills the good because they want the good and freedom. Maybe God will redeem everyone the way he's redeeming me because I'm the chief of sinners. But now, now I ain't got nothing against nobody. I hope everybody gets in. The word cuts. It cuts between that, number one, your love of grace, and number two, your anger. Because maybe you don't want everyone to get in. Maybe you don't want everyone to be saved. Maybe you don't want the will of God, which means you don't want the kingdom of God, which means you'll cast yourself right out of the vineyard. You see, if you don't like grace, you can go to hell. I mean, you can go to outer darkness where men weep and gnash their teeth. But you cannot stay there without end. For in the end, that place will be thrown into the lake of fire and burning hot divinity, and death will be no more, and every knee will bow and every tongue confess, and every person will give glory to the Lord of love for his grace. So, you know, sometimes people will ask me this. They'll say, well, Peter, if that's true, if ultimately everybody gets saved, where's the urgency in preaching the gospel? Well, if you ask that question, you may not believe the gospel. Because if you believe the good news, you'd want to speak the good news, and I don't think you'd ask that question. But there is urgency. It's, not, it's just not the urgency that you, that you might expect, and I've struggled for seven years to even know how to say this. But in the New Testament, I count 18, 18 explicit warnings given to people about what the King James Version translates as hell. That's Hades and Gehenna. All 18 are spoken by Jesus, and all 18 are spoken to his church, his ecclesia, the religious people of Israel who were convinced that they were in and others were out. Who were convinced that they were chosen because others were not chosen. Who were convinced that they were chosen because they chose to be chosen. It's urgent to preach the gospel to people like that. People who believe that their own will is salvation, that their judgment is salvation, that their choice is salvation. The name Jesus means God is salvation. God's choice, God's judgment, God's will, God's word is Jesus. So, so if you don't like God's will, consider yourself cursed. For the wrath of God remains on you. That's what Jesus says in John 3. If you don't like God's word of grace, consider yourself cursed, in which case I suggest you drop to your knees and you beg for mercy and you will have mercy. But when you receive mercy, you will want mercy for everyone. You know, in this parable, it seems that the only ones on the outside are those that are angry that all are on the inside. That is that everyone gets a denarius. 
To them, it must seem like the landlord isn't worried at all about getting the work done because he has no problem offending the hardest workers, or I should say, the ones that consider themselves to be the hardest workers. In fact, right now, you might be thinking to yourself, because people have said this, well, gosh, even if this is true, Peter, maybe you shouldn't talk about it in, in public, because if all get paid the same wage, how do we get any to work in the vineyard? In other words, why work? Why not sin that grace may abound? Why imitate our heavenly father? Why be good? Why surrender to the will of the great bridegroom if not for a wage? Do you hear that? That's what we ask. Why surrender to your will, Jesus, if not for a wage? Well, the early workers are offended at the master's grace, and they're jealous of those that haven't been doing his will, the will of love. They don't have compassion for, they don't have compassion for sinners. They're jealous of sinners. Why? Because they think that they don't have to work the vineyard. The early workers hate working in the vineyard. They hate the master's will. Well, what is it to work in a, in a vineyard? And, and why would someone want to work there if not for a wage? Working the vineyard is what? It's tending grapes. It's, it's pruning branches. It's harvesting. It's treading the wine press. Well, it's something like this. I'd work in that vineyard for free. <laughs> you might think to yourself, okay, Peter, you're going strong with all those Bible verses and everything, but that's just a silly movie. Okay, Song of Solomon. Remember we talked about this last week. Remember in Parable of the Foolish Virgins in the Holy of Holies, chapter 7, verse 8. The prince speaks. May your breast, sorry, it's in the Bible. May your breast be like the clusters of the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. Then the beloved speaks. May the wine go straight to my lover, flowing gently over lips and teeth. I belong to my lover, and his desire is for me. Come, my lover, let us go to the countryside. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us go to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded, if their blossoms have opened, if the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my blood. I will give you my love. If you're a student of Scripture, you may remember that the beloved is this servant or slave girl. She's one of the last. She's made to work in the vineyard by her brothers. Probably it's Solomon's vineyard, yet she herself is a vineyard, and she's fallen in love with Solomon and gives him the fruit of her vineyard. At the end, she sings this. Solomon had a vineyard in Baal Hammon. He let out his vineyard to tenants. Each was to bring for its fruit a thousand shekels of silver, but my own vineyard is mine to give. The thousand shekels are for you, O Solomon. In other words, this fruit is free. You know, Solomon's the son of David. He's a picture of Jesus. And that means this slave girl's a picture of us, the bride of Christ, the church. And if you think I'm being whimsical or silly, read Isaiah. Jesus quotes Isaiah more than I think any other prophet. It seems constant. Isaiah 5.1. Isaiah prophesies, I will sing for the one I love about his vineyard. 
My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. And Isaiah prophesies these amazing things about this crazy wine press. Verse 7, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. Well, in Isaiah, the Lord looks for good fruit, and he sees only bad. And you may remember as Jesus hung on the cross, they gave him sour wine. That's the accurate translation. And he rejected it. So Isaiah prophesies judgment on the vineyard. In chapter 6, he prophesies that it will be burned right down to the stump. He says the holy seed is the stump. The root of David is the stump. Chapter 7, Isaiah writes, In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. This will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin, the, the fruit of mercy. So Israel is a vineyard. And we are the Israel of God, the church. The kingdom is a vineyard. And the Lord calls us to work in his vineyard. To, to do his work is to obey his commands and to keep the law. But you know, there are different ways of keeping the law. If you work for a wage, well then you're a tenant. You're an employee. You're a servant girl, a maid, or, or a harlot. But if you work for another reason, another logos, you're, you're something else. It's, it's the same work, but an entirely different reality. I kneel before you not as a prince, but as a man in love. But I would feel like a king if you Daniel de Barbavac would be my wife. <laughs> Marissa Ventura. Housekeeping. Chris Marshall, candidate for Senate. I'd appreciate your vote. We'll see. After he climbed up the tower and rescued her. She rescues him right back. All our vines come from this one. It's not just the root of Las Nubes. It's the root of our lives. A victorious life. Now that you are part of all this, a part of us, it is the root of your life. You are an orphan no longer. So you see, Cinderella, she does the same work. She still serves. Uh, she, she still serves, but now not as a servant girl or a slave, but, but as a princess bride. And the maid in Manhattan, she'll still cook and clean for the very same guy. She'll do the very same work, but not for a, a wage. And now she's no, longer, she's no longer a maid, she's a bride. Pretty woman will no longer have sex for a wage. She'll no longer roll over and say, what do I get? 
Same work, but not as a harlot, now as a bride, an entirely different reality. Keanu Reeves plays Paul Sutton in the movie. He's no longer an orphan. For he's part of the root, grafted into the family, just like the prodigal son who returned home. Remember, the love of the father transformed him from an employee into a son. See, I don't think God wants employees. Doesn't need them. He wants sons and daughters. He doesn't want mercenaries. He wants children. He doesn't want slave girls, maids, and harlots. He wants what? He wants a bride. I don't think he wants a business. He wants a family. And so, what do you want? A wage? Is that why you work the vineyard? You know, if so, maybe you're not really working the vineyard. Do do you know what the vineyard is producing? This vineyard bears fruit, and the fruit is grapes. I, I think they're like grapes of wrath, for the grapes are placed in a wine press, and they're trampled. Uh, the grapes are crushed. The blood, uh, the, the, they bleed the, the blood. That's what they would call it in that day. They bleed and the blood turns to wine and that wine must be mercy. Jesus said, I desire mercy. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And, and he's quoting Hosea when he says that. Hosea, you remember, was commanded to marry a harlot and then shower her with mercy that she might be redeemed. For that was what God was doing with Israel, his vineyard. The fruit of the vineyard is mercy, hasad, covenant love. So if the workers serve the vineyard, they will serve its produce. They will do the work of servant girls, maids, and harlots, but they'll do it full of covenant love, full of hesed. They will be married. They will be brides like law filled with with love. They will be workers filled with mercy, the very blood of the landlord. They'll be sons. You see, the vineyard is producing sons, children, brides, family filled with the wine of the covenant, forgiven people full of grace, the very lifeblood that flows from the broken heart of the Father hanging on the tree. The vineyard is producing mankind in the image and likeness of God. And who is God? God is love. Love that will not fail. Love that will not quit. Uh, Love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things on a cross, on a hill that is a vineyard. The vineyard's producing mercy. So the landlord is showing mercy to the idle and fruitful workers. And now it turns out that the workers who worked all day and complained were also idle and unfruitful as well. They thought they were working the vineyard, but they didn't even know what it was producing. You know, the Pharisees thought they were working the vineyard, but they hated the wine that it produced. Revelation 14, 19, and Isaiah 63, the wine's blood, the blood is wine. It's the grace of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's the revelation of love, the the revelation of God's judgment, God's decision, the revelation of God's judgment, which is also the revelation of our bad judgment. And so the Lord says, is your eye evil? Because I am good. 
They hate what the vineyard is producing. They hate the will of God. They hate God in the name of God. They weren't working for him, but against him. They weren't working for him. They were working for a wage. They didn't want to be sons, but employees. They didn't want to be family, but tenants. They didn't want to be a bride, but a harlot. So, so, so I asked, does, does the revelation of God's grace through Christ Jesus our Lord make you angry? If so, you probably ought to ask, have I been working for a wage? Am I the bride? Or am I the great harlot? Do I even like God? let alone love God, the God who is love. And, and now, if you feel condemned, ask for mercy, and you will have mercy. But when you believe mercy, you will give mercy to all. In other words, you'll work the vineyard. You'll preach the gospel. You know, I try to preach the gospel, but it often hurts. A lot. And much of the time, I preach it for a wage. On Monday, June 8th, this last summer, I was having a really hard day. It's been hard, really, for seven years. But, but on that day, I just learned how one of my children had suffered for a while, a long while, alone. And I felt like a terrible father. And I thought, well, maybe I really shouldn't even be a pastor, and I wanted to quit. Now, this will give you an idea of my deep spirituality and the nature of my secret prayer garden, but I was going to the bathroom. I was going to the bathroom, and, and I remember I just kept praying, God, you have to speak to me. You have to speak to me. Why won't you speak to me? Will you please just speak to me? Speak to me, God. I sat down on the, on the toilet praying, God, would you please speak to me? I reached down, and I picked up this Bible that was lying on the waist scale, and I said, oh, God, would you please speak to me? And the, the Bible fell open to this passage that, that I think I've read two or three times, and my eyes fell on this verse. Please speak to me. Please speak to me. Ezekiel 2, verse 1, and he said, said to me, son of man, stand upon your feet and I will speak with you. <laughs> now, I didn't stand up on my feet because I was kind of too amazed at what was just happening and I was taking care of business, okay? Now remember, uh, many think that the Reformation started with the revelation Martin Luther got on the toilet, so don't knock this. Anyway, he said to me, son of man, stand upon your feet and I will speak with you. And when he spoke to me, the spirit entered into me and set me upon my feet. And I heard him speaking to me and he said to me, son of man, I send you to the people of Israel. I think that includes the church. To a nation of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The people also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them and you you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God, and whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that there has been a prophet among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit upon scorpions. Do not be afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house, and you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear. And at first I thought, Cool. Maybe God does speak to me. And then secondly, I thought, 
oh crap, they may not hear. In fact, Lord God even says right after this, they won't hear. Well, Ezekiel prophesies that Israel worships idols in secret. Maybe we American evangelical Christians work, worship an idol in secret, our own will, our own pride. Ezekiel then prophesies that Jerusalem has made herself a harlot. He also prophesies that all Israel must be destroyed. He then prophesies that all Israel be raised from their graves and he will lead them into the land, take out their heart of stone, replace it with a heart of flesh, his very own spirit, his very own good, free will. Well, anyway, I thought, number one, cool. Number two, I thought, crap, they won't hear. But then number three, I thought, hey, wait. Somebody does finally hear. Someone does over here. 2,500 years later, I hear, sitting on the toilet. And 2,500 years later, you hear, sitting in this building. Actually, the sanctuary has heard and does hear like a remnant. And I cannot thank God enough for all of, all of you. I cannot thank him enough for you. And I believe that not just me, but we are called to preach grace to the church. See, I think we're supposed to preach from Scripture. Now, if I was just talking to people on the streets, I wouldn't first go to Scripture because they don't believe it. But I think we're called to preach from Scripture. And I don't know if the American evangelical church will hear for maybe a generation or two. I don't know if they'll hear, but I pray that the world will overhear and think to themselves, wow, maybe God is better than I thought. Maybe the love of Jesus is deeper than I know. Maybe the Spirit really is everywhere, working the wonders of mercy. I think I'd like to work in that vineyard. Well, as I was saying, at the start of the parable, no one works the vineyard, yet all receive mercy. It's just some that they don't enjoy the mercy. Some are burned by the mercy. They don't enjoy it. They're burned by it because they think they deserve a wage. But they all receive mercy that they might be merciful. The whole time that they were working the vineyard, the landlord was working them. Do you know he's working us? Because we're his vineyard. We work the vineyard and we are the vineyard. We're the bride called to bear fruit. They all receive mercy that they all might be merciful. But at the start, no one actually works the vineyard. So who's the first? Who's the protos? Who starts the flow of all this mercy? Well, as you know, it turns out that the landowner has a, has a son. Six weeks ago, we studied the parable that follows this parable. The landlord sends his son, and all the tenants of the vineyard, they, they kill his son. The protoss. Jesus ends the parable saying, the protoss, the first, will be last. And the last, first. In some ancient manuscripts, it's also recorded that he says this, for many are called and few are chosen. Remember, Jesus said the same thing at the end of the parable of the wedding feast that we studied five weeks ago when we realized that all are called, and of course they're all called, because why? He came to call sinners. All are called, and one is chosen to bear the sin of all. 
He's the protos and the eschatos, the first and the last, the first who becomes last, that all might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is the holy seed. He's the root of David, the root of your life. The fire comes and destroys all but the root. And the entire vineyard is hidden in the root. Verse 16. So the last will be first and the first last. For many are called, but few chosen. Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, look, we're going up to Jerusalem. It's a hill, you know. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And on the third day he will rise again alive. But on the tree, on the hill, Jesus absorbed the sin of the world. Isaiah writes, it was the will of the Lord to crush him like a grape. It was there that he trampled the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God alone. It was there that our sin was transformed into God's mercy. His blood, the master's blood, flows from that winepress. Revelation 14, 20, there is enough blood to fill the entire land of Israel to the depths of a horse's bridle. So do you get the picture? Horses meant war in that day. All the war horses grind to a stop in a literal ocean of mercy as the glory of the Lord fills the earth like water covers the sea. Christ's blood is the fruit of the vineyard. And God wills it to flow in your veins. And so on the night that he was betrayed by all of us, he took bread and he broke it, saying, This is my body given to you. Take and eat and do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, This cup is the forgiveness of sins poured out for many. Drink of it all of you, do it in remembrance of me. I tell you truly, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. You know, he told us, I am the vine. You are the branches. Abide in me and I in you because he who abides in me, he it is who bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so come to the banquet, drink the wine, eat the bread, believe the gospel, and we'll preach the gospel. Amen? Sit down for just a second. I apologize because I already preached too, too long, but <laughs> at the end of that movie, A Walk in the Clouds, Keanu Reeves, the Paul guy, he's falling in love with this girl in the, in the vineyard who's been working at the vineyard. But due to a lack of mercy, a fight and a fall, a fire breaks out in the vineyard. The whole thing, the whole vineyard burns. And it appears that all is lost until Keanu Reeves, this Paul guy, climbs the hill. And uh, I think I heard somewhere it's called Zion's Hill. He climbs to the top of the hill and he pulls up the stump, the root of the original vine, the root of the vineyard. He, he brings it to the landlord thinking it's, it's dead, and this happens. It's alive. It's alive. Las Lubas lives. 
this land and to this family by commitment by honor and by love plant it it will grow ten years ten months ago that's how I ended the sermon plant it it will grow <laughs> but I didn't think there had to be a fire first <laughs> And so this morning, I'm like, it's alive. It's alive. But I think the fire was necessary. Maybe to burn away all my unforgiveness toward those that are unforgiving. Because you see, I'm an early worker. And grace offends me. I'm sure it was necessary to burn away my faith in Peter is salvation. So that I could see God is salvation. For the whole world, I think it's necessary to burn us right down to the root, to the stump. And his name is Jesus, and he will grow. So, Lord Jesus, we thank you that your kingdom will come, and you will be glorified. And we thank you that you have invited us to work in your vineyard. Lord God, forgive us for thinking that that is a curse, when in fact it is the greatest of all blessings, and you are good. Lord God, we're beginning to believe it. You're good. And so in Jesus' name we thank you. Amen. Believe the gospel, and you will live the gospel.